So, good morning. And uh, just again to my own point of view, just to mention how um, encouraged and pleased I am with the immense degree of attention that you offer to, uh, to what we're saying and to trying to put it into practice. Uh, so this for me as a teacher is really uh, inspiring and encouraging and so you know in a way your quality of attention and, and integrity certainly helps the teachers to you know keep feeling encouraged and interested and in new things being drawn out as this sister was saying the day often we don't really have a particular plan in mind of what to teach but it kind of depends on what, what arises in the field. The field meaning in you know, the shared experience of integrity, commitment, uh, practice, honesty, uh, all these qualities. So appreciate that. And, um, you know, part of our practice is about reflecting on our virtues. Virtues sounds too pompous a word perhaps, but reflecting on the good qualities that we bring into practice so you have to find nourishment you know in that in yourself sometimes we just see our problems and uh, because the often the, the fruitions of dhamma don't don't necessarily come jumping out waving their hands <laughs> going yippee you know <laughs> so it's just a sort of quieter sense of and and in a way the fruitions sometimes make the, the difficult bits have the chance to rise to the surface because there's less other stuff getting in the way so some of the more embedded stuff starts to loosen up and become apparent you know and so we can feel you know wow a lot of stuff's coming up but the fact that there's the space to allow this is part of the process and his first half of the retreat we've just been, in a way, opening and generating enough space with a centering uh, and the boundaries and the sense of safety uh, and all that too. Perhaps to, to open up, to, to get, a, get new maps, to look at the territory uh, in a more full-on, full-on way. Mm. And just to, to uh, put that in perspective... It's always important to, to realize that to do, to do this process, you have to have a, a center. You have to, you know, opening is fine, but you've got to have a centerpiece and you've got to have a, a kind of a simple, you know, reliable bit that you can be orient around, that you can do or be or find your sense of stability within, you know. So this kind of opening can release or a lot of moving stuff and emotive stuff and, and painful things. But really, you know, also we do need to find that place where there is that centeredness, calm, okayness, you know, and be with that and realize this itself has tremendous uh, potency. It's not powerful, but it's potent because it acts as the that which allows the rest of the stuff to move around and, and settle down. And here, center line I'm offering, in, in, in accordance with the Buddha's teachings, is breathing in, breathing out. 
Uh, may I be well, may others be well. Very simple stuff. And coming back to that. And we can uh, fill in some of that. You know? Fill in some of that. I'm also trying to, to speak in terms of direct experience, unwrapping some of these terms, samatha, vipassana, samadhi, mindfulness, you know, impermanence, which are the, the, the way they're, they're conceptually packaged. And I'm, you know, a little bit cautious about using too much of that because there can be so many uh, already established uh, energies and feelings and attitudes around these. And sometimes it's nice to look at these afresh. Fresh. So samatha, steadying, calming, easing, getting to feel good, getting to feel whole. And uh, this this requirement that we all have. Vipassana. So these is seeing into, and these arise. These two forms arise in in tandem. They're supposed to be together, not separate. And if you like, there are two. There are, they arise from two intentions. So the first intention of samatha is how is the mind made steady, how is it stabilized. How is it brought to peace? How is it made one-pointed, steadied? You know, how does that happen? That intention. There's a kind of question there. What do I need for that? Yeah. And this itself is an exploration. It's not just a, you know, here you go, do this, shut up, be quiet. <laughs> it's an exploration into, you know, certain things like being in your body, being peaceful, giving us being patient, giving it time, creating some boundaries, restraint, so we're not continually adding more things to the mix and spilling out. You know. And then uh, the other question is, uh, the Vipassana question is, what is this made? What does this depend upon? What does this state of being, this being in, what is it dependently? What's it dependent upon? You know. What kind of things get this going? What kind of things uh, require to, to keep this one alive? What kind of things cause it to pass away? We might say when we're in a bad, when we're being in a bad state, being in grudge, being in resentment. Ah, recognizing this is not a permanent identity or a permanent thing. What does it depend upon? It depends probably upon remembering certain topics. Yeah. It depends upon remembering those topics and this emotional flush that goes with it. Uh, and it depends upon, um, you know, really uh, f- feeling con- a contact and a sense of this is me, this is I am, this is happening to me. And these are things we start to look into with Pasana. And what are the, what are the pieces that uh, that are needed in order to have completed to have finished with this. What, you know, so it may be, and a very simple map of that is, you know, let's put the topic aside and you go to the emotion of that, the resentment or the fear or the worry or whatever it is, just to go to the, the, that quality itself and feeling it in your body 
So you you coming into your body with that feeling, breathing in, breathing out. Through that, with this gentle sense of spaciousness and compassion, and not trying to get rid of it, just giving it the time to to flow through. And again, the uh, really to me an important piece of this uh, insight process is you don't start off with understanding it. Understanding comes after. First of all, you you start off with, if you like, a samatha attitude of how is this opened, how is this, you know, but then you're looking into not the wholeness of it, but particular salient features of it. So we might have a particular, very, you know, strong thought pattern going on about anything, you know, nature of karma, the nature of the universe, soul, death, afterlife, this, that, this, that, whether well, I should do samatha, this should be pasana, how much, how much with pasana, how much samatha, how much samadhi do you need before you can do vipassana? Is sati the same as samadhi? Is samadhi the same? What is awareness anyway? What is mind, consciousness? You know, zzzz. <laughs> And the right system that's going to get me out of this. And maybe when you come to the overview of that is, wow, wow, obsessive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, well, how does that feel? Like, uh-huh. And do you know, is any answer really going to stop that? No, it'd just be one more bee buzzing around, won't it? One more bee buzzing through the mind. So we recognize that. And feeling that. And feeling the stress in that. And the pressure in that. And the push in that. And then what's really needed here, you know, in this one salient feature of this, to bring it to be the ending of suffering, the ending of stress, just in this little one piece of it. And sometimes when you just get one piece, you understand this, the method for the, all of it. So sometimes it can be the most kind of embarrassing, stupid thought patterns. You get a realization of the Buddhist path. <laughs> you know. So you know, is it Lam Rim? Is it the Eightfold Path? Is it the Tenfold training, is it the this, that, and the Kensho, Sati, Satori, you know, which system you use, you know, which of these, wow, obsessive mind. Oh, how does that feel? Oh, you know, the, the overcharged quality of it is calming, soothing that. And, and feeling it in your body, breathing in, breathing out. Suddenly all that stuff has gone away. Buddhism's left me, thank goodness. You know? <laughs> Knowledge. <laughs> all the torments of Buddhism. <laughs> and I can just be sitting here breathing. You know? I like to think that the, the you know, Buddha's enlightenment he sat under a tree just sitting under a tree I like to think of this as somebody could just sit under a tree without counting the leaves without wondering what kind of tree it was 
without looking for a better tree to sit under. <laughs> without trying to market trees. <laughs> this is a, only a Buddha can do that. <laughs> can sit under a tree without wondering whether he's wasting his time, should be doing something else, looking after trees and just sitting under a tree. So we look, um, you know, this process of someone to be puzzled, they must go together because you need to have that intention to get to the point, you know, which is a summit thing. Like where? So in learning how to steady the mind, you also, what is the point that is unsteadying, that is kind of rattling, you know, and then that, that's the vipassana. But in a way, it's, it's very much aligned to the kind of, you know, we'd like to feel you know, less going on or less stressful, wouldn't we? Simpler, perhaps, more unified. And then you, so insight, we pass and you're looking into what does all this stuff depend upon and how can that dependency be softened, shifted, released? And some things are relatively easy. Some things are much more complex, aren't they? Our, our responsibilities... How seriously do we take them? Say, forget the whole lot? Not really. You know, worry about it all? Not really. Try and get it all going? Not really. You've got to do some careful filtering. But uh, the intention is, is to, you know, is to look into. This is the vipassana insight looking into the dependencies of things, what causes them to arise, uh, what they're carried by, whether they're carried by skillful thoughts or skillful inclinations or confused ones or desperate ones or negative ones. Mm -hmm. And this is very helpful because it does, in this practice, some of the vipassana, do begin to get to the roots of, of experience, so we're not, you know, having to deal with n numbers of issues. We're looking at the basic roots of worry, joy, uh, carelessness, over over intensities, you know, greed, um, hatred, delusion, and fear, and all the kind of rest of the things. However many you. You know, you'd look at the roots of things. And then how, do, how am I with this energy? How can I be with this energy? Can I acknowledge that energy? What's needed to find a place where it rests? It stops, you know, pushing me around. Releases. Energy itself is a useful reference point because energy... Is not good or bad. There's no moral implications to it. It's the channels it flows down that get difficult. So, you know, uh, some of these channels like anger, fear, grief are very uncomfortable and difficult energies. Or that, but they're actually the energy is not bad. It's the channel that it's running down. Mm-hmm. So we should be careful that in dealing with the channel, we don't, try to, to get uh, uh, an, uh, an unskillful response to energy. This is why with things like anger, 
you just take the topic away or put the topic respectfully to one side, go to the go to the, the, the emotion, that kind of firing, you know, where and you, you contemplate it. Now everybody's anger at that moment is justified, otherwise we wouldn't be angry. You know, it's justified to me, I've been hurt or so so it's interesting, isn't it? Somebody else's anger is unjustified. <laughs> Mine is justified. That's interesting. <laughs> How come that? Is? How come it's like that? So what is my anger trying to do? It's actually trying to bring me back into here I am. You know, there's some rallying gathering myself together. It's bringing me into a unity. It's samadhi. I get this samadhi quite a bit. It's a a unification because I've been shocked, broken, bits have been pushed out and it's kind of like, boom. It's a a reaction to bringing yourself back together again. And the first response that a sentient creature does is defend. You know, when when it's attacked when it's bashed, the first thing it does is, it, how's it, how does it defend? If we can't curl up in a little ball, we'll go into this bristling. Yeah. And at that time, for that sentiency, that is ju- not just, it's beyond justification. <laughs> it's not a, it's just what, we, what happens is going to happen. Yeah. Now, that's, that's the way it is. And that energy of maintaining one's boundaries is healthy. We need to maintain our boundaries, our integrity, our wholeness. Is anger the only way to do it? And what do we find ourselves getting angry about? Or what are the topics? Sometimes these are, you know, how, how necessary, how relevant is it? So we check that topic and let's go to the energy and then being with that, softening it, finding out actually I'm not, I can come back into wholeness in a, in a way that causes less fire to run through my veins. You know? It doesn't have this abrasive effect that I feel regret for afterwards. It doesn't hurt other people. It's a matter really of just uh, sensing it, breathing in it, and uh, letting it be moderated. It's not wrong. It's what happens is not, what happens is not wrong or right. It's what happens. And uh, our intention is how can we you know, what happens, how can what happens be most skillfully related to and handled so that it, it, you know, finds its most useful form. Boundary definition, clear, no, or enough, or I need some space now, or back off, or, you know, whatever. We can find ourselves getting angry just with thoughts in our mind. And 
And we can feel guilty about feeling angry. So it gets more and more complex. But with uh, Vipassana, you're not adding more to it. You just take that particular piece, say, what, what, where's the stress in this? What's this dependently arisen on? How can this particular piece be handled, held, so that it can find its place to rest? So in this, many of our conflicting energies, our sense of love and warmth, as well as our sense of uh, anger and aversion, you know, start to sort of melt down into something more, more, less swinging from one extreme to another, more balanced. This is called samadhi. Samadhi means unification or concentration, generally translated as right, concentration. It's a word I'm a bit wary of because for many people, concentration is something they do in their uh, math or engineering or problem solving. It generally means tightening your head up, trying to get it right. And I, uh, I don't think that gives very whole good results. But we say that samadhi is is a unification experience. Unification of what? Unification of the body energy, heart energy, and the head energy. So there's a sense of clarity. It's a simple, it's not complex thinking. It's a simple clarity of knowing this is this, it's like that now. There's a heart clarity, which is a sense of being able to f- no longer feel rocked, shaken, pushed out, running away, running in, running out. Just steady heart quality, of, which is therefore warm, gentle, pleasant. It's a natural pleasure that the undistracted heart is naturally pleasant. You don't have to make it pleasant, it is pleasant. There's a steady body energy. You feel settled, you feel grounded. It's not obsessive. It's not tightly held. It's not a domination experience. This is, uh, you know, meditation. So people may ask, well, do you need samadhi or are you doing samadhi practice as if it's some kind of special practice that you do instead of doing insight. (laughs) But if insight doesn't support samadhi, it isn't bringing you to unification. So it isn't really in line. If samadhi doesn't come through insight it's really um, it doesn't line up with insight then it's a matter, It's more dis- uh, sidelining things distractions or obsession the Buddha said there is no wisdom without samadhi uh, a practice without samadhi is like a road going nowhere or perhaps you could say it's a road going everywhere 
accept where it needs to go, you know. But just consider samadhi or, or unification, maybe a more helpful word, is an intention to unify, to steady, to feel whole, rather than an activity of trying to get concentrated. It's a result of feeling unified, whole. So my kind of makeshift mantra, paying attention, finding the center, paying attention, having that intention to be attentive, softening those edgy places, those jerky places, those compulsive places, those retracting places, and widening, and then including it all, including all those energies so that gradually we are bringing things into unity. You're going to get that way round because if you try and include it all before you've got a centre, it's just overwhelm. And we don't really know what we're doing. Another term that's used from time to time is the term nimitta, which means a characteristic, a defining characteristic of something, a defining sign, a characteristic. It needs to be used in a very specialized way to refer to particular uh, visual or semi-visual mental experiences that people have, like inner radiance or light or something like that. Um, actually, this, in this, t- this sense of the word, it doesn't appear in the Buddha's teaching in the Pali Canon. It seems to be something that, you know, is more specialized. But the word and the reference to it do are there, but it means the defining characteristic of something. You get the point. It's a point of unification. Now, for example, you know, actually this thing is happening all the time. There's nothing that specialized about it, but with meditation, you're able to focus on that. It's when you get to the point. So you see somebody walking along, you recognize a human being. They get close, you say, oh, it's Cousin George. Nimbitters are starting to arise, and Cousin George, I owe him a hundred bucks. <laughs> the nimbitter arises, which is feeling of dread, <laughs> worry, associated with this particular formation, with this memory. Yeah. So what's happening? You've definitely got a physical object, but uh, Cousin George, when I don't owe him a hundred bucks, is different from Cousin George when I do. Yeah. So Cousin George, who owes me a hundred bucks... <laughs> different experience so you get you know first of all there's the the initial perception cousin George some sense of recognition of oh yeah right part of my world and then you get a more detailed contact impression which is a feeling of you know uh oh dread 
or something. So that your, the defining characteristic then becomes a dread nimitta, or a worry nimitta, or a fear nimitta. So you get to the point, you, that's the point you have to deal with. Not all the other things you can think about, Cousin George, but that particular characteristic. So you do this with your own mind, you know, all these various sundry topics. What's the defining characteristic of this one? Could be feeling inadequate. Oh, okay, that's got it, yeah. And you know you've got it because when you get it, it, re- it resonates, it rings. Because it's a unification in that you intellectually, it's not, well, it's a very simple intellectual note, oh, intimidated. There's an emotion with that. And there's a, there's a bodily sense with that. The three. Now this bodily sense, you know, is the bit that we may not be in touch with or recognize. But if you notice, um, particularly when things are quite powerfully uh, characterized, you'll, you'll get the intellectual sense of, you know, Cousin George, and then the emotion of friendliness and warmth, and then some anticipation, and then conk, the sinking feeling in your guts. Oh goodness, he's going to get on my case for not paying you back the hundred dollars. So you get this physical or somatic sense. Or you see Betty or something in your heart sort of rises and you get a feeling of lightness and joy because, you know, and there's a bodily sense with that. Hmm? Now that texture, that bodily texture is part of it. You can't have an emotion without that bodily sense. But often the emotion itself is so provocative and so creative we don't really notice the fact that we're tightening up a little bit in our throats or loosening up in our body language at the sight of this person we're fond of, you know. And you're getting tingles in your fingers or something or your face lights up. You don't notice that because all this other stuff the emotional stuff starts creating, should I do this, should I do that? Oh, I remember this, that, you know, it's very creative. So what we do is we try to simplify the emotional language. So a sense of restraining, calming, to get it down, not to repress it, but just to try to get to the one point so there can be this unification of, I can feel you in my heart or in my guts or in my, wherever it is, you know, where that experience is happening. They don't even have to be physically located, but you get the sense of a bodily bump, you know, going on with that. This is very useful because then that is actually the the place where we can start to balance that. Can I breathe in and out through that particular sense? Interesting, this is just the way that uh, we're wired. And you need to have that, that em- em- emotive perceptive, so it's not necessarily a powerful emotion, but it's emotive, it's got a felt meaning to it. And without that, you don't recognize something. Nothing makes sense without that felt resonance. Now, an example of uh, in, uh, neurological experiments um, they're just recognizing the way the brain is hooked up, these neurons and synapses and things like that. And there's 
listening to a lecture by a neuroscientist saying some people have minor lesions in the brain or some of the circuitry isn't quite hooked up. So they're perfectly okay, but certain bits are missing or out of sync. There's one example of this uh, man um, you know, who, who had some kind of small lesion or something like that. And he, he would see his, he'd see his mother... I said, hi, 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 mom, how are you doing, you know, and feel that sense and be with her. And then they say, okay, now you phone her up, or she phones, she phones you, and he picks up the phone, and he hears his voice of somebody sounding like my mother. Who's this woman sounding like my mother? Why is this woman pretending to be my mother? I'm feeling a bit anxious about it. Goes to see her, say, Hey, Mom, I heard somebody who sounded just like you. <laughs> Even though it actually was her. And they're trying to figure out what's happening. They found out that the, the, the problem was that the auditory nerves connect to a certain part of the brain that gives rise to the emotional response, certain warmth. No, no, no the auditory nerves were cut. So when he heard her voice, he didn't get this emotional resonance. When he saw her, the visual nerves were hooked up to the emotional part of the brain. He saw he did get the emotional resonance. Therefore, seeing her, oh, it's you. When he hears the voice, it's not hitting that spot of, ah, oh, it's not you. So it's interesting, the defining characteristic is not the physical form or the sensory contact, auditory or visual. I imagine it could be the other way around. It could be, you know, obviously it could be the visual thing cut. You, know, you couldn't recognize her when you saw her. You only recognize her when you heard her. But the, 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 the defining characteristic that makes her your mother is a mixture of both the sense contact, the emotional impression, and a kind of resonance. Oh, that's who she is. You know? So that's, and that nimitta, that sign may be one of gentle warmth or nervousness or whatever it is. And of course it can change. That same person might be a, a dread nimitta when she's scowling. You know? Or it might be a love nimitta when she's smiling. Or when she's dead, it could be a grief nimitta. You know? But in, that's how it hooks up. Now that's neither external, in other words, part of it's my wiring, but it's also not purely me because it does depend upon something out there that, that triggers it. Yeah. So we begin to recognize this experience of what's called contact or impression is right at the place of at the interface it's the place where our karma is happening. The place where our karma is happening, the place of contact. The place of my feeling of, oh, I'm in a safe place. You know, uh, I feel interested, or I feel intimidated, or I feel worried. These kind of, and then all the activities that come out of that. You know? And interesting enough, you notice how this can trigger, can't it? Yeah. 
you 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 come to a place you come to a place like this maybe and the first person you meet is looking a bit serious you think oh dear this place is a very serious place you know that one contact impression then becomes global maybe you meet me for the first time I'm sitting there looking a bit the way I do oh dear looking a bit grim this is a grim practice <laughs> it becomes a global statement you know I I, goodness, you know, Buddhism rested upon my appearance. Gee. <laughs> but, you know, so you get the, these limiters that can be quite significant. They can ruin your whole day. Or you have a, a fortunate one that can suddenly, oh, what's happening is that that particular sign of, you know, somebody in a position of some authority looking a bit serious, suddenly triggers off all those memories and perceptions of what it was like to be with one of these people and what that does to you. And vice versa, for good or for bad. Like we're walking around, like we are wired. And you touch one of these wires and karma starts happening. Yeah? Isn't that kind of slightly awesome? <laughs> so we've got to really, you know, be careful of the of the proliferation around that. So this, 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 you know, your mind spins out in all the things you should, shouldn't, da, da 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 da, without really checking it out. And we come down to actually the main thing to deal with is just this sense of the anxiety. How that feels, who I become in that, become little, weak, pathetic, whatever it is. Okay, may you be well, steadying, breathing in, breathing out. So you sort of start to, through that intention to calm and unify, you start to see the thing that's rattling you. And it's not really purely internal, like I'm nutty, I'm, ne- I'm neurotic. Uh, nor is it purely external, it's all them, but it's karma. Which is a bit of both. It's not yourself. It's not you're a neurotic person. If any of one us gets our anxiety button pushed, we will do the same thing. <laughs> it's not myself, but the same kind of process will happen. I'll feel you know, nobody likes me, I've got to do a lot, I'm not worthy, all those kinds of things will start flooding up. You know, we know, perhaps in my language, using my references, the same kind of karmic thing happens. But instead of rushing around trying to deal with all the topics and the issues that it brings up, my history, I just the anxiety, the feeling overwhelmed, the feeling not good enough. Ah, it's just, you know, What's that depend upon? So we draw it in, the sense of restraining, collecting, getting to the point. And I think if I was to, you know, really kind of recommend something very broad as an ongoing cultivation in the retreat and outside the retreat, it is this sense of simplification of your lives, simplification, getting to the point, getting to the point, simplification. 
Basically because, you know, it is a practice. It's not a given. You know, what, what, the, the, the field that we're in is very much option-soaked, isn't it? Like you can't get a cup of coffee in America anymore. I go, somebody wants to buy me a cup of coffee. I can't have a cup of coffee. I can have a semi-caffeinated soya latte, mocha, frappuccino, <laughs> Colombia medium roast. I've got through that. I'm going to decide what sweetener I need for that. It's going to be Demerara, cane, white. Honey, maple syrup. What's the latest one? Al- Algarve or something. <laughs> you know, I sort of cl- put my fist on it. Please help. <laughs> I have a cell phone. They gave me a cell phone to make my life more easy. You know, so I could stay in contact. I've had this thing for a year and a half. <laughs> I heard it. I think, okay, today's going to be the day when you crack the cell phone. <laughs> I just want to make a phone call. <laughs> So, so, okay, pushing on 16 options. <laughs> Each one of those options has got between 2 and 10 sub-options. Each of which has got between 2 and... And the language gets complicated, like what's your IPN number, your DNA code, whatever it is I'm going. Oh, maybe I'll write a letter. <laughs> Or it isn't really necessary anyway, just forget it. <laughs> but it's great because I really do think, do I really, really need to make a call? <laughs> Maybe one or two friends is enough. <laughs> So these things are going to make me life more happy, complete, (laughs) wonderful. Uh, Sorry, I haven't got the energy for it. But, you know, the the myth of it is really compelling, isn't it? One of the things you can do. So if you just be aware of that that, that trend and then you, you come to... Meditation was, yeah, Vipassana, Samatha, breathing in and out, breathing out, metta, emptiness, anicca, Dzogchen, being the present, being the knowing, bit of this, bit of that, you know, in this entire, wow. (laughs) Dealing with judgmental mind. So exhausted. <laughs> Getting to the point. 
So there's so this uh, one of the little anecdote about Ajahn Chah. Is, um, the monk told me his time he was um, he was actually disrobed then. At the time he was a monk, and he lived in the monastery Kawat Pananachat, which is uh, one monastery set aside for Westerners, whose particular form of madness is different from the Thai form. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, you want to guys, want to, you've got this kind of madness, you go over there. Cause <laughs> <laughs> and so generally, by and large, is highly charged thinking and, and, and worries and insecurity, most of them form. So he's getting, and Ajahn Chah lived in the other monastery, which is like seven or eight miles away. And he'd come over and so forth. So these two places... So this guy, this monk, has kind of problems. He's a Westerner. What's he doing in Thailand? He's a man. What's he doing wearing a skirt? <laughs> do you really need to do all this in order to get enlightened anyway? And, you know, that was fine 2,500 years ago, but now we're here. And is it better to do this or maybe a lay person? Or, and then do you need how much samatha do you need, samadhi, insight? Or perhaps it should be... More discipline, less discipline, space, being with people, being on your own, um, less work or perhaps more engagement, less food or more food. Or so he's got to zip. So he's got to get over to. So I've got to get Ajahn Chah. I've got to go over and see Ajahn Chah. I've got these big things I need to sort out. <coughs> so he kind of, right. He starts trucking over, walking over. You've got to walk. So he walks all the way to this other monastery. <coughs> Takes him an hour and a half or so gets to Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah's outside his kuti. It was like a little meditation cabin. And he's got this broom. He's got this long broom with uh, sticks in it. You have to make your own broom. He's brushing. He's brushing the leaves away from the path around his kuti, just brushing all the leaves away. And the monk comes up, sort of kneels down. Ajahn Chah looks at him, picks up a broom and says, working's better than talking. Gives him a rock. Okay, so he starts sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. He's sweeping away for an hour or so around his kuti. Sun's starting to go down. He's thinking, okay, well, I didn't get to see him, so I guess I'll, I'll just take leave. You know, so he puts the broom down. He goes to pay respects to Ajahn Chah. And as he turns around to pay respects to Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah looks at him, puts his hands on his shoulders and says, whatever you're doing, just be with that. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? Just be with that. Be mindful of that. Ooh, you know, sort of stopped. You know. So okay. So well, was it something about the broom? Do we need to do more broom sweeping? <laughs> It's a particular pressure point in the shoulders you have to reach. <laughs> Is it that particular phrase? You reach these pressure points in the shoulders. <laughs> Say those words and everything. That's it. That's the new technique. So, you know, this is you know, to, to, to simplification really is like how to do simplification, which is not 
crude or nihilistic, but just really, you know, the sense of how is the mind unified? What is the real charge, the nimitta that's happening? You know, the worry or the feeling of inadequacy or the, you know, concern about or the sadness. Whereas, and you sometimes you just look and you start to say the word, it dong rings. You feel it rings, it lines up. That's the one. So then <coughs> you can, <coughs> you develop meditation, say breathing in, breathing out. The breathing in, breathing out becomes a, a nimitta because everything does after a while. You stay with it. And if we apply the right kinds of intentions, it becomes a, a comfort nimitta, a, a brightness nimitta, a sense of presence, ease, nimitta. It has those characteristics. We go to it like we're going to see an old friend. Good friend. Not something you've got to claw at and make work. So you put those two together. You take your problem limiter to your good friend. Say, why don't you two guys talk to each other? (laughs) It's like that. And you have to abide by the answer they come up with for now may change for now okay so re- relying upon where the, the where you are unified to give you relevant answers rather than in your head or in your heart or in your body, but where all those three line up, relying upon that to give you the whole answer, the whole point for right now. And in half an hour, that may change. So when we're cultivating breathing, body, elements, you know, try to keep a, a practice that's very simple and, and you can use more or less in many places. Obviously, you're breathing it out all the time. Um, and you, you come to it and you work with it to make it like a friend. You know, like your cousin, like your friend. It's with you. It's warming you. It's filling you. You don't have to pump it. It happens. And uh, so that becomes then that it's not obviously not the physical breathing, it's not even the energy of the breathing. It's somehow a mix of all these. It's a certain emotion. It's a certain mental clarity. That's what it is now. That's what I feel like. And it's all. It's a unified. It's a holistic experience. So why I've called this holistic awareness, Uh, and you know where that friend sits. Maybe sometimes that's sitting in your belly, on your throat, back, back of your nose, chest. Find out where the friend, that friend is, where that Buddha is. Or Buddha feels a bit too much, just a good friend. 
Kalyanamita. And um, so you know, that's, that's the point to get to. That's the point of samadhi. That's the point of unification. Because you can unify with that which you have that, that relationship with, not with anything else. Not with a duty nimitta or a gotta nimitta or even a Buddhist nimitta. It's the, the good friend. It's very intimate, very personal. It may, for some people, it can feel like warmth or light or nothing particular, just this sense of soft, quiet, here I am, and that. Mm-hmm. And to keep, so it, it, I must emphasize again, it has a, this emotive texture to it, but it's not an emotion, or that's only a part of it as an embodiment with that. And there's a sense of mental clarity around that. Yes, it is. It's that. This too is dependently arisen, conditioned, impermanent. But it's a useful one. And it will change. It itself will change. But it's characteristic of being something that you can go to will remain. Because it's always a place of wholeness and unification where that seems to be silence, emptiness, embodiment, particularly emotional register. However it manifests, it has the quality of being unifying. And you know, however it's expressed, if it's not doing that, then it isn't the one for you. So it's a very personal practice. It's the place where our complexities start to unravel. It's the place where our stress starts to find relief. It's the place where we come home, feel centered. This is a much, to me, this is a much more useful way to talk about samadhi and to realize how essential it is than just calling it concentration. Okay.